Uh, the conference goes to Saturday at noon, but because I know of the weakness of your flesh and your desire to pack and to get out of here quickly, I'll say thank you so much for having Carol and me the last uh, two years. We've uh, greatly enjoyed uh, being with you, enjoyed uh, your fellowship, enjoyed uh, the wondrous food that you prepared for us, enjoyed the desserts that you make for us, uh, enjoyed uh, talking theology with you, uh, laughing with you, uh, making jokes w with you. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time of Christian fellowship, a great time to be in my favorite place on all the earth, Yosemite National Park. Uh, but how much better can it be than when we are together uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ? So thank you very, very much for having us these last two years. We greatly appreciate it. I was talking to uh, kids in the front row, and it keeps reminding me I have to edit all my illustrations uh, to make it uh, safe for five-year-olds and not just uh, for college students and above. Uh, so you can pray for me about this message. He's, he told me that he enjoys my messages. They're fun. And I thought, like, you don't know what comes next in James. <coughs> and we're going we're gonna to wail. We're going <laughs> to weep. We're going to mourn. Uh, I asked him if he knew what it meant to be humble, and he did. Uh, he understood uh, the concept of uh, being humble. I asked him, do you know what it means to be selfish? And if you start thinking about this, it's true. There is no one who's forced to be more humble than a five-year-old. So yes, they know all about humility. All the big brothers and sisters make sure uh, that they quickly learn what uh, humility means. Uh, and then uh, selfishness, uh, you just went through your twos, threes, and fours, so you know exactly what it means to be selfish. Uh, so actually, uh, perhaps we can teach uh, the book of James all the way down to uh, the five-year-olds and that we can uh, apply this in ways in which uh, we can live these things out. Uh, I've taught uh, professionally a number of portions of Scripture. I have never taught James. So James is a fun book. It's not that I've never read James. It's not that I've never been in James. It's not that I've never preached a sermon from James. I've never taught through James. Uh, my style of exposition is to help you when you go home and reopen the Scripture again and to read it for yourself. My goal is that you'll be able to Reteach it to yourself by understanding the argument of the book, understanding the flow of it, understanding the interpretation of it, so that you can reuse this over and over again. So we are learning James together from the viewpoint of how James is developing his argument and how what seems at first glance to be disparate ideas all thrown in the blender together actually has a, a logic and a theme as he works his way through. And so he started with our problems with trials. His readers are suffering persecution. And he gave us advice on trials. He explained how these could actually flip over and become temptations to us. He says the, the real answer is to turn to God and to ask God for help, and that the real answer from God is in the written word. And he says the problem is, is that you don't actually let this grow inside of you. You 
hold it at a distance. You, you know something about it, but that you don't make this a part of you. And so he uses amazingly beautiful Christ-like examples of letting the Word of God take root in you and grow up in you. He speaks of it as being implanted in you. And so much of the answers to our problems, and you probably heard this in grade school and Sunday school, is the Bible. It's, it's, it's a simplistic answer, but it is a truthful answer. And because he is regularly, all through the passage so far, saying people are lying to us and we're lying to ourselves and we keep deceiving ourselves about these things, he says, open your mouth, let me look inside, and let me take a look at your tongue because I can see what's in the well of your soul by what comes out of your mouth. So before you grade yourself with an A, and uh, I was with college students last night, and we just laughed and laughed and laughed at, at how everything I've said about the college students at Biola or at Emmaus are true of their college experiences as well. And, and we find that the industry that we're in is, is humorous in these ways. Every student believes he is an A student. Uh, every student <laughs> negotiates himself to an A. In, in every class I have, I have the person who thinks himself to be an exception. Because of the digital natives I have in my class who only think electronically, uh, they believe that they should have their computers out and write down everything I say. And I'm saying, like, uh, studies have now proven that you'll be writing papers in other classes, you'll be checking Facebook, you'll be sending Snapchats, you, you will not be paying attention to my class. Put your computers away, turn your phones off, use a paper and pen. I know it's ancient, but you can't write everything with a paper and pen, and so it's going to come into your mind, you're going to have to distill it down into summary statements, and you're going to have to actually process it as you write it, and you're going to have to prioritize what you're writing down, and you'll actually learn, believe it or not. And though we give these as absolute rules in the class, we have these students that pull out their phones and look and think that I'm blind and cannot see, and we have Students that sit in the back row thinking the back row must be in the dark or something and they, they can't be seen at all and they pull out their computers and they write papers for other classes. Well, the worst student in the last class I was teaching only came about a third of the time who was on his phone almost all the time. I'd go up to him after class and I'd say, like, does somebody in your family die? And he, he said, oh, my aunt is really, really sick. And I'm saying, like, how many aunts do you have? <laughs> because, because you're on your, your phone all the time. He was negotiating his way through the class, never taking any of the quizzes on time, asking me to reopen the quiz for him, to retake it uh, at a, a different time. And finally, we get to the end of the semester, and uh, he got a D on the final. His, his average was a C, and he had the gall to send me an email to say, uh, I, I, I see that I've earned a C in this class, but I need an A. What can I do to get an A? <laughs> and I already explained to the class, once you take the final, the class is over. The class is closed. Everything is done. The final is the end of the class. It's like death. It's done. <laughs> but yeah, sure enough, there's, there's the email from the guy uh, who taunted me with his disobedience all semester saying, now I need an A. What can we do to negotiate? And this is a lot like the book of James, in which we lie to ourselves, and then we negotiate with God, and we say, like, I am your favorite child, am I not? 
and you do like me best, do you not? And I'm an exception to all of your rules, am I not? And the answer is no, 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 sorry, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, you, you've completely misunderstood. In fact, you're causing fights in our churches. Uh, you, you're so fleshly that the whole reason why our church is so messed up is because of you and people like you. You are a problem to us. And so I'm I'm studying James even while I'm up here because, as I told you, I don't normally teach James. And since she's in the room, I'll I'll say things like, Carol, I can't even say this stuff. I, I can't even teach this stuff. This stuff hurts me. This stuff gets to me. This stuff is too harsh uh, how do I say this? Because James is way bolder than I am. Uh, he's the half-brother of our Lord. He's the leader in the church in Jerusalem. He can say whatever he wants to say, but I don't feel like I can say what James wants us to say, but I will say some of what James says, and you had the text of the Scripture in front of you, and so I'll say... We are all C students sending an email to God saying, what do I have to do to get an A? <laughs> and here is James giving his answer as to what we have to do uh, to get an A. Having just explained the problem with the tongue and giving the answer as to what we need to do about our tongue, saying it can't be the instrument of inconsistency, he says, You have to change the way you think. What comes out of your soul via your mouth is first coming from your brain. And it's that you don't think correctly. So change the way you think. And the way in which you get a change in your thinking is with wisdom. And so, much like a teacher, he asks a provocative question. He says, who among you is wise and has understanding? And if I asked that of my students, they'd all raise their hands. <clears throat> they all are wise. They all have understanding. And he says, show me. And that is a very good response. Show me. I had a prof in seminary. And the name of the class was New Testament Introduction. Introduction is a deception. It's not anything. You take it your last year. It's, a, it's actually the background behind the books as to the, uh, the authorship, uh, the destination, uh, the readers, everything that would lead up to how the book was written. Extremely difficult studies you know, to decide between the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory and who it is that are the Galatians, those kinds of things. The prof on the very first day of the class gave us every question that would be on the final and said, start studying or invite me to your funeral. Which, which caused one of my buddies, as he struggled his way through NTI, New Testament Introduction, to actually create a shirt that said, I survived NTI. And, and basically he was saying, show me. Show me your learning. And here James says, who among you is wise and has understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. 
The word translated gentleness there is the same word that we translate meekness. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of self-promotion. It is, in my best possible illustration, the power of a horse bridled and under control. And so he says, you need a kind of wisdom that is developed through all of the power that you have being held back by the ministry of the Holy Spirit within you. You need to skillfully apply what you're learning from the Scripture to practical living. And unless you live this out, you don't know anything. Remember in grade school when you started studying math and then they threw in the word problems and suddenly you said like, wait a second, I I can do the problem if you actually give me the formula, but if you're going to make it into a story, I'm lost. But why do they give you story problems in math? It's because that's how math works in real life. And so in real life, we live our lives in stories. And he's saying, if you say you know the scripture and you can't put it into real life, you don't really know it. So you have to ask yourself, how will I know it? And he says, the only way you'll learn is you first say, I don't know. I'm going to have to learn. And I'm willing to humbly receive what it is you're asking me to learn. This will be the theme through the whole morning. The gentleness, the meekness of wisdom. The showing what you have learned through your deeds. But then he turns to the fights that we're having in our churches. And they boil down to a single word that even A young child understands selfishness. One of Carol's and mine greatest irritations are parents who coddle their two-year-olds. There is a war that goes on between parents and two-year-olds as to who will be the boss in the home. At the age of two, they've decided, I will be the boss. I will decide for myself what we're going to do and how things are going to go about. And by the time, if you let them do whatever they want to do by three and four, they'll not only be controlling you, they'll be controlling everyone around them. I went to a Thanksgiving at a home of a relative in which she had placed place cards on the table as to where we were sitting. And so we all stood behind our chair thinking we were going to sit where she had assigned us until her little toddler announced that she was going to decide where each of us were and grabbed us and would push us and place us in front of a different chair and push this person over in front of this chair. And we're all looking at the hostess, and she says, just do what she says. Well, you could guess how she's going to grow up, and you guessed exactly right. She became a drug addict. She abandoned her first child. She was a terrible example. You can see it when you're young. And you can see it in ourselves. And you can see how it then works its way into the church and causes division in the church. He says, verse 14, if you have bitter 
jealousy. Perhaps a better translation would be zealous jealousy. Imagine being so jealous, you're zealous about your jealousy because you see what you do not have and you lust for it and you wish to steal that from another person and spend it on your own pleasures. If you have selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth and deny what's true. The reason why you can hardly watch the news anymore is because politics is completely selfish. Selfishness is learned by toddlers. And if we coddle it all the way through our lives and into our Christian experience and into our churches, it will be ruinous. Selfishness is the opposite of God. God would never have saved us were he selfish. Love means sacrifice. Love doesn't mean necessarily affection or attraction. At its most basic, love means selfish, selflessness. God gave to us the offer of salvation at infinite cost to himself. But lust says, I'm jealous, I'm envious, I see the power you have. I see the prestige that you have. I see the wealth that you have. I want what you have all for myself. The truth is going to come from the word of God. He says we won't even be able to see the truth or know the truth unless we begin without jealousy, without selfish ambition verse 15 this wisdom is not that which comes down uh, from above but is earthly natural demonic our self-wisdom is sensual unsanctified unredeemed it causes rivalry it produces disorder it causes confusion and evil in our churches he says in verse 16 where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there is disorder and Every evil thing. But the wisdom of God, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure with moral and spiritual integrity and sincerity. It is peaceable, peace-promoting, peace-loving. In other words, we can clearly see the difference of what is coming out of the man from his mouth, from his actions, as to the source of his information and his motivation. The people we should follow, the leadership we should follow, receives wisdom from above that is pure, that is peaceable, that is gentle, meaning kind and courteous, humble, without any thought of hatred or revenge. Wisdom from above is reasonable, That means it's willing to yield. It doesn't always demand its own way. It's teachable. It's obedient to God's standards. It's full of mercy, meaning that it sees people in hardship and ministers to their needs. It's able to forgive quickly. It bears good fruits, the the character traits of Jesus Christ himself. It is unwavering, meaning that it is stable in its choices, that it's without partiality. It's consistent it is even-handed it is fair 
It's without hypocrisy. It is not divided. It doesn't make unfair distinctions like he was describing between the rich and the poor earlier. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the truly wise man who is receiving wisdom from God is the person who pursues peace, who seeks peace. So to achieve the righteousness of God or spiritual maturity or practical holiness, we have to learn to speak with care. We have to learn to develop within us a Christ-like spirit. We control our tongue with a cultured thought process in which we've learned to think differently and seek wisdom from God from the Scripture. And then our mouths will be filled with praise and our mind will be filled with purity. But then why don't we see this in our assemblies? And he says, what are the sources of quarrels and conflicts among you? And those words are muted compared to what the words actually say. They are battles and wars, he says. What is the source of the battles and wars in your churches? Is not the source your pleasures? That's the word from which we get hedonism. The whole concept of pleasing myself is the most important thing. That wage war in my members. So if I can't get along with the other brothers and sisters in the church. It's because I am a pleasure-seeking, selfish person. Now, that is so important, I have to say it again, so that you hear this loud and clear. There are wars, there are battles in our churches. What's causing the fight? The individuals who are fighting... are fighting because within themselves they are selfish, they are pleasure-seeking. They are ambitious, but not ambitious for things that they've earned for themselves. They're ambitious to replace the leadership because they see the power and the prestige that would come with that. And you could even throw in the money and the ability to decide how the funds are spent. And the problem actually is an internal problem within the people causing the fight more than it is the issue itself. They can pick issue after issue after issue, but the problem is not so much the issue as it is our own personal selfishness and ambition and focus on our own pleasures. And you would say, we're talking Christians, right? We're talking about churches, right? Well, it is true that you have some unbelievers in your churches that you've not yet recognized, and you have some carnal believers in your church that you've not yet helped grow to maturity. That's also true. But it is also true that believers sin, and that believers still have, though the power of the Spirit would allow them to obey, still have a sin nature that cries out with a lure towards temptation.
But Christian people can cause fights in the church. So my wisdom from the scripture is to say to you, look past the proximate cause, which is what they're saying the problem is, and look to the problem of the heart, which is, what does James say? Selfishness, pleasure-seeking, ambition, power, prestige, and the desire to take over what has been developed by other people. This is not unique to James. Other writers write of it. Peter, as a fellow elder, writes to his elders and said, when you lead, don't lead from the front. Don't lord it over them like the Gentiles would. Instead, guide them like a shepherd would guide sheep. And then immediately he turns to the young men. And he says, young men, be patient. I know you want to lead. I know you think these old guys are (laughs) irrelevant to today's needs. I know you think that. Be patient. God will exalt you at the right time. Okay, so where have I spent my life? I've spent my life at Biola University and Talbot Theological Seminary, which is a graduate school of Biola. I spent my life at Dallas Theological Seminary. So I am at two of the best seminaries in the entire world. I go to Emmaus Bible College, one of the best Bible colleges in the entire country. So I'm around the most knowledgeable, the most godly men that you could possibly associate with all of your life. So I've been in wonderful places and I've seen the most awful things. And you say, like, how is that even possible? I sat in an elder deacon meeting in which a young man said to an elder, I'm just waiting for you to die. We were asking him to serve in the church, and he was basically saying, there's no reason for me to serve unless I can be an elder. And he's blocking my way, and I'm just going to wait for him to die. Can you imagine verbalizing that at the same time as reading James or 1 Peter? Can we not see the selfishness in our own hearts? Can we not see our own ambition? I listened to a guy who was new who said, in five years I want your job, and in ten years I want your boss's job. And I said, like, this is your first year here. What are you thinking? And it's all selfish ambition. So what do we have to stop? What what happens is in our churches is that we look to the proximate cause of what it is we're arguing about. And we haven't seen what the real problem is, is what is in our hearts. And so we have to go to the real source of the quarrels. That's the actual terminology he uses. What is the source of the quarrels and the conflicts among you? Battles and wars. Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members, 
you lust and do not have, meaning you see something that belongs to someone else that you want to steal to spend on your own pleasures. You commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So you say, you're not going to give this to me, so I'm going to steal it from you. How's that fair? How are we going to let people do this to us? I've seen assemblies in which all the young people together will stand together and say, if you want this church to continue, you're going to give it to us or else we in mass will leave. Every elder resigned. They gave it to that younger generation and it ruined the assembly. And I could repeat that story over and over again. In a previous job that I had, I traveled all over this nation. I visited assembly after assembly. I could repeat that same story over and over again in which there is mutiny on the bounty, in which the young men are not patient, in which the young men demand the power in the assembly and say, we'll all leave in mass unless you give it to us. That's not what it says here. Almost humorously, James says, you know what the answer is? It's so simple. You want something? Ask for it. But don't ask the elders for it. Ask God for it. Remember 1 Peter 5? You young men, be patient. God will exalt you at the proper time. So who do I ask for it? I don't ask my boss for his job. I ask God to place me where he would want to place me for the service that he would have me have in service, right? James is so practical. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And you say like, oh, well, that's easy. Then I'll ask. And he goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. Haven't we just been talking about motives? <laughs> You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motive so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Oh, how many of you have said to yourself, I've been talking to God about this for a long time. And somehow I'm not getting through. It's not that God is not omniscient and that he doesn't know what you're saying. We have to evaluate how and why we are expressing these desires. First of all, God holds back a number of his actions until we ask for them. It's a way in which he teaches us. He says, I could do this, but frankly, I'm trying to teach you something, and so I'm going to wait for you to ask for it. I'm going to hold back some of my actions until you ask for it. Ask and you shall receive. Then you'd say, like, well, this is easy. I'll just ask for all kinds of things. He says, no, 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 no. You don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you could squander them. That's a better translation, <laughs> much like the squandering of the younger son in the prodigal son story, so that you could squander it on your pleasures. And then he calls them a dirty name. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And you'd say, like, where did that come from? That has nothing to do with what you're just talking about. It has everything to do with what you're just talking about. Why is it that I'm selfish? Why is it that I'm hedonistic, spending things on my pleasures? Why is it that I'm so selfishly ambitious that I want your position so I can have power and prestige? It's because I'm worldly, because I'm living in the world. Read the letters of Jesus Christ to the churches in Revelation, and you will see that each of these churches match their city's personality. They take on the characteristics of the city that they're in. Now ask yourselves what it's like to live in Southern California, or in the case of those of you that are most vocal, Northern California. The Southern Californians are properly humble. We're from the Midwest. You find yourself constantly influenced by the things of the world, and we don't realize the extent to which we are worldly. We should start looking through all of our motivations and all of our desires. Part of the way to to do this is just to watch how you spend your time or what you spend your money on. Those are pretty good barometers of where our attention spans are focused and what's important to us or what you do for vacation. So you guys are doing very well coming to... (laughs) a conference and biblical exposition while vacationing. So no criticism there at all. But he is saying a huge problem in analyzing why you're not receiving what you're asking for is because you're worldly. Nearly to the point of being an adulteress. You have to be careful about your motives here. What is the cure for this? Do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And he's referring to Proverbs 3.34, which he'll quote in the next verse. He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. He is saying, rather than lusting with envy, realize that God yearns for you to only love him and serve him. We can't have divided allegiance. But God intervenes and gives us greater grace. And so even though we have all these propensities to move away from what he actually wants from us, he will give us greater grace. He says in Proverbs 3:34, God's opposed to the proud. He battles against the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. And so if we want the answer as to how we can get Yeses to our prayer requests, it is to humble ourselves before God. Think I'm lying? Look at verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Get on your knees before God, spiritually speaking. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's, It's a military term to stand your ground. Hold your ground. He'll have to retreat. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He'll show himself. He'll empower you to succeed through this spiritual warfare. However, closeness to God, communion with God, will not happen unless we are willing to seek cleansing from him. Cleanse your hands, your sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, those of you with divided allegiance. Humbly repent, confess, 
and obey. 1 John 1, 9 should be on our lips on a daily basis. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When the brother in the front row, the young man said, your talks are fun. Immediately I thought of verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. What he's saying is we don't think about how badly we have hurt God's feelings. We have to be contrite in spirit as we confess our sins. We have to be serious about our repentance and confession. And if we say to ourselves, why don't I feel close to God? Why can't I commune his Holy Spirit to my spirit without impediment? The answer is selfish ambition. Spending things on my pleasures. Worldliness. Unconfessed sins. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Sounds just like 1 Peter 5. Don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So stop slandering. Stop defaming your brother. Stop putting your brother down. Stop setting yourself up like you're God and you're the judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Wow. I never realized the problem was me. Why is it we always blame the other person? Why is we always say the reason there's a fight is because it's his fault? The reason there's a fight is because I know best and he doesn't. Is there any chance I have improper motives? Is there any chance I'm the one that's being selfish? Is there any chance that my ambition is getting in the way? Is there any chance that my seeking of pleasure or my weakness towards worldliness is causing the quarrel and the fight between us? We should ask ourselves every time, is it me, Lord? Father, we come before us, we come before you, opening our hearts before you. Just like James asked us to open our mouths and examine our tongues, and we examine our motives. And we say, Father, rescue us from our personal selfishness. Teach us humility. You are God and I am not. You're my Savior. I am the one who is being saved. You're the one that did all the sacrifice. I receive this as a free gift. You're the one who's empowered me to serve you. And yet I seem to be serving myself. Oh, Father, may I seek your glory, not mine. May any kind of ambition be ambition placed in my heart by your spirit for your glory and your purposes and not my own. Father, may I not 
ever be the source of quarrels and fights in our local churches. May I be the one who recognizes the need for wisdom and the ability to apply the Scripture to my particular situation. Oh, Father, each of us cry out before you asking for help. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.